0: Nations that had staged successful Marxist revolutions didn't do it on purely economic grounds, but first had attacked cultural institutions of the working class.
1: In this episode, I sit down with Liz Wheeler, author of the new book, Hide Your Children, Exposing the Marxists Behind the Attack on America's Kids.
0: Social-emotional learning is one of the most interesting parts of how the Marxist ideology is reaching everyone's children.
1: What are the key ways in which Marxists take power? Why might the concept of neutrality actually be a trap?
0: We've fallen for this idea that we shouldn't insert any kind of values or moral order into our society.
1: This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Jekielek. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest rated firms in the country with an a rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or text American to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text American to 65532. Liz Wheeler, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders.
0: Thank you for having me, it's my pleasure.
1: I've really enjoyed reading your book, And, you know, it's kind of very provocatively titled. We're talking about, you know, Marxists coming after kids. What is is the reality of this situation? What do you mean when you say that?
0: Yeah, so the title of the book is Hide Your Children, Exposing the Marxists Behind the Attack on America's Kids. And this is the first question that people usually ask. They usually say, Liz, really? marxists isn't that just an empty ad hominem that's hurled on cable news isn't that just the insult that we use that no one really understands what it means then i say listen like many other parents during covid and i think this is true whether you're democrat republican conservative liberal we caught a glimpse of what our children were learning in school just by peeking over their shoulders during zoom school we saw that they were being brainwashed with critical race theory and transgender ideology in addition to good old-fashioned moral relativism that your truth and my truth is more important than the truth and I thought to myself at the time it seems like this is a concerted effort series of attacks on our children why why is this happening all at once and it turns out the answer to this is less of why and more who who is behind this so what what I realized is it's not particularly new This is not something that just started happening during COVID. The left has, for nearly a century, attempted to re-engineer our society, and unfortunately, they've been pretty successful at it. They've captured what I call four out of the five major cultural institutions, our foundational institutions. They've captured the media. They've captured the education system. They've largely captured religious institutions. They've just about captured the law, and they've set their sights on the nuclear family, almost destroying that as well. You could argue that there's one element of the nuclear family left standing, children, which maybe explains why the left is going after these children. But what I do in my book is I name the names of the people and the organizations behind the capture of these institutions, behind the attacks on our children. And what I found is that the, the people behind these attacks are self-avowed Marxists or have embraced an obvious Marxist ideology. So. That's the first half of the book that I unpack the reality of what we're facing. I often say that if we as conservatives and Republicans refuse to acknowledge the reality of the political enemy that we face, even if it sounds hyperbolic when you say Marxist, if we refuse to acknowledge who these people are and what ideology they espouse, then we won't fight effectively against them and therefore we won't win. What I do in the second half of the book is I offer a solution and I will, ad- I will admit to you, it's different than what the Republican Party offers. I offer a solution for how we can reclaim our institutions and protect our children, both, of course, for the sakes of their individual souls, but also if we surrender our children to the left, our nation is done.
1: Our audience uh, has grown quite a bit to basically have a whole bunch of different people under one umbrella. Of course, there's a lot of Republicans. We know that. Um, then there's a lot of people that call themselves politically homeless right, and a lot of independence and so forth. So is it, why the focus on Republicans?
0: It's a great question and I think I can best describe this by saying that I first identify not as Republican but as conservative. And as conservatives or as politically homeless, you can call us common sense people, you can call us independent thinkers, you can call us freedom-loving Americans. There's many ways to describe what we are before party affiliation. But the way that our political system works is you join one party or the other, whichever party you share the most values with so that you can work in towards a concerted goal. Even if you only agree with seven out of 10 principles of the Republican party, well, it's better than agreeing with zero out of 10 of the Democrats. The reason I'm critiquing the Republican party is because these attacks by Marxists, the capture of our institution, the fact that there are now targets on the backs of our children is coming from the left it's coming from far leftists it's coming from it's been embraced by the democratic party democratic politicians espouse this and what we should expect is the republican party to push back on this they should be fighting you would hope effectively to advance conservatism in our nation versus allowing this marxism to seep into our culture and into our law um but they haven't and they certainly haven't fought back with any effectiveness against it one of the main goals of my book is to challenge Americans, regardless of your political affiliation, if you're sick of your children being attacked, if you recognize the chaotic reality that we are living in right now, where reality itself is under attack, then we have to ask ourselves, who is our most effective fighting partner? And if that effective fighting partner is the Republican Party, since the Democrats have embraced what I would describe as evil, we have to be part of holding the Republican Party accountable for how they're fighting.
1: Give me the landscape of what you see happening.
0: Yeah, so one of the debates that I think we've seen in this country over the course of the past, even six months, not not even not even going back as far as two or three years, but in the past six months, there's been this debate over what does the word woke mean? Can, can you define the word woke? And this has been asked to a lot of thought leaders, again, in the conservative movement, in the Republican Party, since we are, we've embraced being the anti-woke party. And a lot of people can't define what it means. They, they recognize it when they see it. They know that white children being told that they're racist just because they're white, that's wokeness. Or a little girl saying, if you identify as a boy, you can be a boy. You are a boy. You are how you identify. They identify it as wokeness, but they can't really define what it is. So one of the things that I do in my book is I trace wokeness back to its origin. Where did it come from? What is it? How can we fight back against it if we don't understand what it is? And what I found is that it was—it was—it's the brainchild of a Brazilian Marxist named Paulo Freire. Paulo Freire had bananas views. He was a self-avowed Marxist. He did not believe in objective reality or objective truth. Therefore, when he looked at schools, the education system, he didn't believe that children were being taught knowledge because he didn't believe that there—that knowledge was a thing. He thought, well every every bit of quote-unquote knowledge is just the prevailing political narrative it is not because it's right it's not because it's true it's just because it has emerged victorious in this competition of political narratives and he argued that children shouldn't be taught the prevailing political narrative that instead children should be taught to view the world through critical consciousness critical consciousness of course if you look into what is critical consciousness Critical consciousness is essentially viewing the world through the lens of Marxism, where everything and everybody is either oppressed or an oppressor. It's the classic Marxist dialectic. And this critical consciousness, this viewing the world through a Marxist lens is exactly what wokeness is. It is simply a rebranding or a redefinition of a word, a favorite Marxist tactic, Uh, a euphemism for this Marxist lens that is now being indoctrinated into our children in school. So when we understand that, when you see that, it's kind of hard to unsee it. And then we put that in a box for a second and think about, okay, Marxism, what is Marxism? A lot of people understand Marxism as economic Marxism. You think of Karl Marx, you think of the Communist Manifesto, and the simplest explanation is class warfare with the goal of communism right the working class revolting against the ruling class um, in order to have collective ownership of everything private ownership of nothing and honestly that didn't work well it was never the global it didn't spark a global revolution the way that marx and engels thought that it would and it, it therefore died out it was kind of relegated to just the crazies and the kooks and universities it wasn't put into practice until A man by the name of Antonio Gramsci revived it and brought it back to life in the 20th century by recognizing that the nations that had staged successful Marxist revolutions didn't do it on purely economic grounds, but first had attacked the civil institutions, which is just another word for the cultural institutions, of the working class. And so he proposed, Gramsci proposed, that in order for a nation to be transformed from what we would consider to be a free democratic nation into a Marxist or communist nation, first, before that revolution could happen, you have to destroy the cultural institutions on which the working class rely. And those cultural institutions that he named, among others, are the very same ones that we see modern American Marxists attacking in our society right now. The end goal of communism is the complete deprivation of basic human rights. It results in oppression, tyranny, and death. It depersons individuals in the countries in which communist dictators prevail. That is evil.
1: Well, it emphasizes group identity. That's one of the commonalities across all of these different, let's call them Marxist derivatives, right? Which, which you describe as wokeness. That's very interesting. Because of course, I've had you know numerous guests on the show that are looking at, it through, looking at this through different lenses as we try to understand it. I want to touch on the nuclear family for a moment. You, you said something interesting. I hadn't thought of it this way before, but you said the children are one part of the nuclear family that might not be compromised. What do, you, what do you mean by that exactly?
0: Well, if you look at the traditional nuclear family, it's comprised of five elements, man, woman marriage sex and children throughout human history that's been the understanding of a nuclear family and in our country for the past 150 years i mean this started pretty early in our in our country there's been a concerted effort to destroy the family feminism radical feminism has told women that they're worth less that they should copy men that it's really destroyed parts of the nuclear family The same with the attacks on men. That might be one of the most prevalent parts of our culture right now, this cultural attack on masculinity, telling men that testosterone is a toxin, that they're essentially rapists if they're not feminized out of it, that their desire to protect and provide for their families and their wives is somehow wrong and marginalizes their wives. Um, It's culminated, of course, in the Me Too movement, where there's been a legal effort to deprive a legal and social effort to deprive men of due process, of the presumption of innocence until proven guilty. It's the same with marriage. I mean, we have legalized gay marriage in our country right now, and I know this is a topic a lot of Republicans and conservatives are uncomfortable talking about. And you can even set aside homosexuality for a moment, or the, the idea that two people can do whatever they want in their own homes, just set that aside for a minute. And the danger of allowing gay marriage to be legal lies in the ability of government officials to redefine words. Because whoever has the power to redefine words becomes the arbiter of truth. The arbiter of truth, I mean, that's really just a nice way of describing authoritarianism. So when we allowed, when we surrendered marriage to justices on the Supreme Court to redefine a word that simply cannot be redefined, The, the institution of marriage existed long before we did, long before our country did, we surrendered a key part of our freedom. Of course, we also had the sexual revolution that tried to twist and pervert sex that has really all these different elements. I mean, it's, it's kind of a heavy thing to go through all of these assaults because all of these aspects of the nuclear family have at one point or another been the target of Marxists, not just leftists, not just Democrats, but of Marxists. And the remaining element is children. The left needs to compromise children because they understand that in a simple debate, um, Marxism is not going to win over capitalism. If there was an honest one-to-one, here's what communism has to offer, here's what capitalism has to offer, communism's never going to win. So what they have to do is they have to separate children from their parents, they have to um, distort children's minds, they have to Um, pervert reality by redefining words in order to compromise these children so that these children before they are fully intellectually psychologically and spiritually formed can be can be coerced is maybe the word indoctrinated is maybe the word into being permanent neo Marxist revolutionaries for the Marxist cause
1: you know you, I noticed that one of your chapters focuses a bit on this uh, social emotional learning. Yeah. Kind of, it's been described, I've heard it described as a Trojan horse of sorts. So maybe tell me about that.
0: Yeah, the social emotional learning is one of the most interesting parts of how the Marxist ideology is reaching everyone's children. And an interesting conversation I had with my husband right after our daughter was born, our daughter's two and a half now, was about. You know, how are we going to educate her? Are we going to send her to private school, public school, homeschool? I mean, every new parent thinks about this. And I'm, of course, a proponent of homeschooling. I was homeschooled myself. I think it's great. Um, My husband went to public school and he was like, oh, that woke stuff isn't in the public school in our neighborhood. Like, she'll be fine there. You just walk down and talk to the teacher. This conversation that we had has stuck with me because this is a very common, or it has been a very common um, thing that parents have thought that oh yeah the wokeness is out there it might be in california it might be in new york but it's not in our neighborhood it's not in my child's classroom slowly the eyes of parents across the country have been opened to realize that this is touching your child even in the public school that you went to as when you were a kid that uh, the classroom with the same teacher that's been there for 10 years like it's in there and the reason that this wokeness has pervaded is through things like social emotional learning. What is social emotional learning? It sounds fine, the words are innocuous, they don't have any negative connotations, and it's not, a, it's not a subject matter, it's not like history and science, it's disguised as values education, which again, sounds fine, we want our children to be taught values, we want them to be taught right from wrong, but the question that parents should ask, and that I recognized when I, when I wrote this chapter, is what are these values? If this is values education, what values are inherent? What it is, is it is an aspect of uh, a worldview that is being packaged with, with every other topic. So you no longer have math. You have math with social emotional learning. You no longer have science. You have science with social emotional learning. You no longer even have gym class. You have gym class with social emotional learning. And what it is, this values education, is critical consciousness. It's Paulo Freire's Critical consciousness, this lens through which they are trying to teach children to view everything from math problems to family interactions to how you behave towards other people. And the worldview that they are teaching children is a Marxist worldview.
1: So I want to talk about Paulo Freire for a little yeah. bit because uh, I've only somewhat recently, let's say within the last year, realized how incredibly influential he was. So he's, you know, I think he's the most cited. Um, academic on education in the American system by a margin. And somehow this has been baked into the education of every teacher and every teacher's college in the country that I'm aware of. Maybe there's a few exceptions, but uh, how did that happen?
0: He once said something, Paulo Freire did, that I laughingly confess that I agree with. He said, there's no such thing as a neutral education. And at first, when you hear that, you think, oh, indoctrination, that's bad. And the more that I thought about that, I realized he's right. There is no such thing as neutrality. Neutrality is an idea that Republicans have fallen for. We've fallen for this idea that we shouldn't insert any kind of values or moral order into our society, that we shouldn't use government, just authority of government, to help create this moral order. and. Because of that, we have withdrawn our values from, from a lot of these institutions that have been captured. And of course, what's happened is, since there's no such thing as neutrality, the Democrats have simply stepped into that void that we left for them and have hijacked that institution for their own purpose. And the way that I think is best to illustrate this is public education in our country was not mandatory until it became mandatory in 1852 in the state of Massachusetts which a lot of people think, oh, that's not that long ago. And the reason that public education became mandatory in Massachusetts was because at the time there were a lot of immigrants coming to America, a lot of immigrants who were Catholics who were coming to America. And the Protestant politicians at the time wanted to make sure that the children who had been born in other countries, that was their homeland, coming here to the United States were... Given an American civics education, because they would be the next generation of Americans, and they the the politicians at the time wanted children to be loyal to America if they were going to be American versus loyal first to their homeland, so they made public education mandatory so that they could um, so that they could indoctrinate children in American values and also in Protestant values because the politicians at the time were Protestants and they were anti-Catholic. As a Catholic, I laugh about this now, but This reminds us that the idea of indoctrination is actually morally neutral. Indoctrination, we think, oh, the left is indoctrinating our children, and that's wrong because of what they're indoctrinating our children with, not because they are indoctrinating our children. Indoctrination, the morality of indoctrination is completely determined on what it is that's being indoctrinated. Public education was created to be an indoctrination system. People on the right understood that at the time, but then we surrendered that institution that we had built for indoctrination to someone else. We surrendered it to the left in this false name of neutrality, in this false name of maybe separation of church and state, a misunderstood topic. Well,
1: I, I think what people would say, or what I, what I might say and what I've heard others say, well, yes, there's indoctrination and then there's teaching of critical thinking. So indoctrination, the way we I think it's typically used, if the suggestion is that you teach someone the right the specific correct way to view certain things as opposed to teaching them the tools to be able to figure things out, whether or not there's a moral there's a moral platform, right, involved. So you're saying indoctrination is the is the passing on of a particular moral position. I, 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 this is what I'm trying to understand.
0: I've used the term critical thinking my entire life because uh, when, I was, when I was in school, when I was homeschooled, I always felt that one of the things that set my education apart from my public school counterparts was I was able to critically think about things, whereas some of them were not. But w- in the course of writing this book, I realized that that phrase was a phrase that I should not have been using because critical thinking is a Paulo Freire wo- phrase. It is describing thinking only through critical theory, not the way that you and I would think, oh, are we are we analyzing this exactly? What we're talking about when we, when we say critical thinking is we're talking about independent thinking. We're talking about the ability to decipher a problem or not to be led by groupthink. But critical thinking is a misleading term that, that seeped into our culture that's actually quite wrong. And what I propose and challenge my fellow Americans, especially parents, especially conservatives and Republicans, is to understand that the idea that I'm discussing right now is not new. If you'll allow me to tell this anecdote, this is something that I've changed my mind on. Um, About seven, eight years ago, back in 2016, I spoke at CPAC. And after I spoke, I was out in the lobby, and an independent journalist came up to me and says, what do you believe the role of government is in America? How would you define liberty? And this was like a very philosophical question. And I gave a very uh, libertarian response. I said, oh, the role is to protect life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and otherwise, you know, to stay out of our business. Unless someone's inherent, inalienable right is violated, government should really stay out of our business. And this independent journalist says to me, he says, well, do you believe that in the legalization of drugs, and I was kind of caught off guard. I said, what kind of drugs are you talking about? Like hard drugs? And it turns out, yes, he was. He was talking about meth. He was talking about heroin. He was talking about fentanyl. He was talking about cocaine. And I said, well, no, I don't, I don't think we should legalize those drugs. That would, lead to a, that would be self-destructive. That would lead to a chaotic society. And he responds by saying, well, isn't that a contradiction of your definition of liberty? And I realized that, yes... It is a contradiction. It turns out he wasn't a journalist, he was a a cannabis legalization activist, which I suppose is neither here nor there for this, for the purpose of this story. But this has stuck with me because in a sense he was right. This idea that freedom is the ultimate end or that the definition of liberty is as close to absolute liberty as we can possibly achieve is the wrong definition of liberty. And I challenge people to grapple with this. I know it's a mind-bending question, but to grapple with this question of whether freedom is the ultimate end or whether it is the means to something greater. We know that grown men dressed as sexualized versions of of female strippers gyrating in front of children is, I mean, we all know in our guts that that's grotesque, it's immoral, it's awful, it's evil. If, If freedom is the ultimate end in and of itself, then there'd have to be some inherent morality to that. But there's not which led me to this evolution of how I think about Liberty. It must then mean that freedom, if it's not the ultimate end is the means to something greater. So what is that something greater? And it turns out that the framers of our constitution actually grappled with the same question. this is not something that I invented. This is not a unique problem that I've thought about. James Madison, author of our constitution in the federalist number 51 he defines the word liberty he defines it in a way that matches freedom as the means to something greater and he says that something greater is justice which i have read that federalist paper 51 dozens of times but suddenly as i'm re- as i'm writing this book and researching I'm understanding it in a completely different way, because I recognized what James Madison was saying. When he said justice, I thought, oh, this is the debate between the John Lockean view on liberty and the Edmund Burkean view on liberty. And Edmund Burke, who was hugely influential over James Madison, Edmund Burke proposed that the definition of justice then, because of course we'd say, okay, great, the definition of liberty is justice, what's justice? The definition of justice mirrors original justice, capital O, capital J. And what he's talking about is natural law. So I realize that this moral order that freedom is the tool to achieve cannot be fully achieved or understood in our nation until we as a society understand that objective truth exists, that the definition of words like man and woman and marriage and moral and immoral right and wrong truth and liberty and justice all of these definitions which right now are up for grabs in our country the definition of these words exist in the judeo-christian morals on which our constitution was founded and the response that i often get to this point is well are you talking about forcing a christian nation are you talking about a theocracy are you talking about religion And my answer to that is no i'm not talking about a theocracy and yes i am talking about religion because you don't have to be a practicing christian you don't have to worship jesus christ in order to acknowledge that when our founders created the structure of government that was to guide and form our society they did so by acknowledging the definitions of these words and the definitions of those words were rooted the origin was rooted in those biblical principles or those judeo-christian values so my challenge to conservatives is we must re-embrace the idea of natural law of these objective truths if we are to reclaim our society from this chaos
1: you know you look at some of these cities like say san francisco la other places where you know, for example, there's these open air drug markets, right? As that's, that's one way. That's one way to describe the the scene. There's this radical libertarianism that's promoted, where you say, "Well, this person who's addicted to this, to this drug, we can't impose ourselves on them and prevent them from taking this somehow, because for some reason that would be imposing on their rights. But it's perfectly fine for them to kill themselves with the drug." It's weird. It's like our priorities be, have become inverted or, like, or we lost that we lost that guiding principle that you're that you're outlining here.
0: Yeah, it's it's very interesting because this problem that I am discussing isn't just relegated to like legislatures and statutes and like the boring stuff. This is evident in our culture. It's evident actually in the the back and forth that I've been having with Andrew Tate. For the past few weeks, I mean Andrew Tate obviously is this mascu bro influencer. He was the most Googled man in the world a year ago. He tells young men that they are under attack by our society. He accurately actually diagnoses this cultural ill that our society vilifies men. And then he prescribes as the antidote materialism and pornography and exploitation of women and worship of self, this very self-destructive prescription for a problem that he accurately diagnoses. And This is perfectly emblematic of what has happened in our uh, political, cultural environment. It's fairly easy to look at something that's wrong and identify it as wrong. But what's not as easy is to define what's right. It's easy to point out what's wrong, but it's not easy to define what's right. And so what happens in our culture and what has happened culturally and politically is exactly what has happened with Andrew Tate, where you have someone who, to his credit, is courageous enough to point out a bad thing that's happening in culture, even when that is unpopular to point out. And it resonates with a lot of people who are the victims, who are being victimized by this assault, in this case, on their masculinity. But then, because we as a culture and as a political body, as a nation, have surrendered the idea Um, that objective truth exists, that natural law must reign if we want society to be well-ordered, we fall prey to a false diagnosis. We fall prey actually to a self-destructive diagnosis as a solution to the problem, even if the problem was correctly identified. And this has happened in um, politics, too. It's, It's really libertarianism, because libertarianism doesn't want to define what's right. They want that to be a morally relativistic, Um, individual truth they want everyone to have the license to make those decisions about morality themselves even when it impacts the larger society and that is not conservatism the Republican Party has embraced libertarianism as conservatism but it's not Um, in fact the framers of our Constitution rejected libertarianism because that's essentially what the Articles of Confederation were the Articles of Confederation were A libertarian document it didn't work it created chaos for the first years of our country so the Constitutional Convention was convened and they came up with a document that was not libertarian a document that understood the necessity of a moral order in society and gave government the just authority to recognize objective reality to recognize natural law when I say it's not a new idea it's not even a new practice we have laws in our nation right now for example where children are not allowed to even walk across the floor of a casino. Why is that? It's not because they're going to be physically harmed walking across the floor of a casino, walking through slot machines. It's because we, as a society, acknowledge that that's immoral. It's morally harmful for a child, not physically harmful, morally harmful. And that's just one example of many. We have laws that govern morality, even if it doesn't dictate religious practice. And the left would like us to believe that those two things are The same thing, and those two things are not the same thing. The people at home, entrusted as the protectors, meaning our elected officials, they willingly surrendered the definition of words. Again, I know it's incredibly unpopular even among Republicans to talk about gay marriage, but gay marriage was the beginning of the redefinition of words that Republicans allowed. There was no limiting principle on it at the time, and we're seeing the repercussions of that. It's an incredibly important battle that Republicans simply surrendered because they were like, oh, I don't care what you do in your own home. I don't want to define for someone what happiness might mean. Who am I to boss someone around? Separation of church and state, blah, blah, blah. And they didn't, they, they willingly surrendered this definition, not realizing the power that it would give to the other side. And we're suffering from it today.
1: You know, wasn't thinking about any of these, uh, I guess, implications at the yeah. time.
0: The people at the time who spoke out against The efforts to legalize gay marriage who warned about the repercussions were accused of engaging in slippery slope fallacies they were called bible thumpers they were you know castigated as the the religious right things that a lot of conservatives didn't want to be associated with those names and so they backed off but it's hard i think we're such a prosperous society we have enjoyed such immense freedom and wealth and opportunity, just this this amazing life that we have in the United States of America that we forget, or it's not tangible, we can't feel it, that there are people who want to take it away from us, who have the ability to take it away from us, and that if we don't constantly fight back against it, not just kind of defensively holding it at bay, but if we don't hold down the fort, then someone else is going to occupy it
1: you're bringing up uh, this uh, the politics they, people call it the politics of personal destruction another sort of way to talk about it is Heckler's veto yep. um, this has been such an incredibly powerful tool of this kind of authoritarian left right
0: it is yeah the Heckler's veto is I'm going to intimidate you into silence even if the law doesn't require it I'm going to socially coerce you into into compliance essentially I mean we've seen this everywhere from on college campuses when i went to speak at um, james madison university this past april and there were a thousand radical trans activists the speech was literally titled the ideology of transgenderism and i was talking about where did this idea of the gender spectrum come from where did this the idea that if you identify as as a woman you can be a woman where did this come from and of course the answer to that is queer theory it's a critical theory that begot of the frankfurt school And I was talking about the intellectual roots of this and the debate team so objected to hearing a discussion on this that they condemned my appearance at this school. Now, I'm pretty used to being uh, being protested. I've been in this work for a long time. I understand. I understand it and I understand how to respond. But they were hoping to intimidate me away from being able to speak. They were hoping that threats of violence against me and my family and against the facility and the students that were hosting would cause my viewpoints not to be discussed and i'm saying this because i care so much about our children and our families and our country and these cultural institutions but we've become so worried about uncomfortable conversations that even on the personal level let alone the governmental level or the the cultural level we bow to the hecklers veto quite often and it empowers them
1: you kind of have this impression that a much larger group than just the people that are very, very loud, you have this impression that it's a much larger group that's sort of agreeing to that position. So you back down.
0: Yeah. And I talk about this a little bit in one of the chapters of my book about technocracy. Technocracy is ruled by the experts, right? A lot of us became more familiar with this during COVID when it was like, oh, all hail King Fauci. Listen to what he says. He is the predominant expert. Therefore, we are not allowed to question or dissent or have opinions that differ from his. He's a perfect example of technocracy, although he's far from the only example. It's not, it's not an isolated in, individual here or there that makes up um, the technocratic class. This is an idea. And I, re- I was researching this for my book, and what I found is the idea of technocracy goes all the way back to French socialists or this uh, Russian Bolshevik scientist, physician, who accurately described technocracy, ruled by the experts, which is kind of the heckler's veto, right, like if we make enough noise, you're not allowed to dissent. He described it as a stepping stone, technocracy is a stepping stone from capitalism to communism, because once individuals who maybe aren't in positions of elected, elected power are unable to dissent, unable to question, then they have sacrificed their ability to identify objective truth, and they've surrendered that power to redefine words to someone arbitrary who's claiming to be an expert. So I find the heckler's veto to be much more than just a nuisance, much more than just an individual threat to a speaking engagement that I have on a college campus. I find it to be an outgrowth of the idea of technocracy, that if someone has designated themselves as an expert, no one else is allowed to question it, otherwise you will be branded as anti-science or transphobic or whatever the whatever the insult of the day is and technocracy is prevalent in so many aspects of our lives i mean the entire administrative state in the federal government all of those executive agencies that is technocracy um codified that is the living embodiment of technocracy we see it in educational institutions, we see it in the medical field especially, young parents will recognize it because we we experience technocracy in the pediatrician's office. You go in and the pediatrician tells you, you know, don't co-sleep and breastfeed only a certain amount and do this schedule of vaccines, and a parent with any questions is shut down immediately as if it's not their child and told just to defer to the experts, just to defer to what the American Academy of Pediatrics says or the CDC says. It is not always based on empirical evidence. It's based on ideology.
1: Well, you've got me thinking about this term heckler's veto right now because, you know, traditionally the idea was just some random people come along, scream a lot, you can't be heard. So effectively they get the veto on, you know, which direction things go. But here this is something like it, it becomes experts veto, right? Or it becomes the systems veto or the technocrats veto or something like that
0: the way you describe it as oh someone shouting someone else down it's a tool of the technocrats it's how technocracy enforces the experts being the only ones allowed to have an opinion because it's not that dr fauci is going to be out there actively censoring everyone who dissents but his minions the hecklers veto Mm. the social pressure the coercion that's what shuts down people from maybe not legally being allowed to have an opinion, but from socially feeling that they can. I mean, it's a, we overlook the power of this tool. It's a power, I mean, and we saw the example of this during COVID when the vaccines were rolled out and we saw so many people who didn't want it get it anyway. They didn't think that they were at risk from COVID. They thought maybe the vaccine had been rolled out too fast. They weren't sure about the mRNA technology. They saw maybe they were young men. They saw the risk profile for the heart problems and yet they got it anyway. It was. I mean sad yes but fascinating to watch this aspect of human nature because you have to ask well why everything about what you thought your analysis of the situation was accurate and yet you did it anyway why did you do it anyway and the reason for that is this social pressure it's overwhelming people don't trust themselves people um are made to be part of a community we are not made to be hyper individualistic we're made to be part of a community that shares our values in order to help hold us accountable, but also in order for there to be cohesion amongst our people. There has to be a set of shared values. Otherwise, you have people, in this case, it was abused, this social coercion. You have people who didn't want to do something, who were socially pressured to do something on behalf of the technocrats. For a lot of us, it was disillusioning to watch this unfold or to see the grip that this that technocracy has in our country, but for me, I mean, I spent the last year writing this book, and I will tell you that unpacking exactly how all of this happened, how it came to be, why it has such a strong grip on our nation now, has actually encouraged me that once we understand this reality and acknowledge it, we will be able to fight back against it, but not just through platitudes and trite cliches through a difficult and challenging reorientation of how the Republican Party operates and how we define what we want for our society.
1: So, (laughs) hide your children. I'm gonna go back to your title here. Um, It doesn't seem somehow proactive, right? Or is it?
0: Um, It's twofold. First of all, I got this idea from, remember that video, that YouTube video that went viral a couple of years ago, the guy Antoine Dodson? It was a local news report that just everyone in the country saw this hilarious YouTube video. Um, where the guy was like, "You gotta hide your kids, hide your wife, because they've gotten attacked or something." Obviously, we have a rapist in Lincoln Park. He's climbing in your windows, he's snatching your people up, trying to rape them. So y'all need to hide your kids, hide your wife, and hide your husband because they're raping everybody out here. And I thought that was so funny, and it was such an apropos—not not funny, but a way to bring levity to a very serious to a very serious topic. But the way that I describe this in my book is. We must, as parents, give shelter to our children. The idea of sheltering your children has been castigated in our nation. Oh, you don't want your kids to be sheltered. They won't have an idea of how to operate in the world. They'll be unsocialized, blah, blah, blah. But giving shelter to your children from the evil of the world until they are equipped to handle it, until they understand the definition of right, and wrong for themselves so that when they look at the world and they encounter evil, they can identify it as such and not just identify it but understand what right is compared to evil. We must as parents give our children shelter from this evil so that they don't grow up confused at best or at worst indoctrinated and then once they are capable of this discernment, then we will have formed them into self-sufficient members of our society, hopefully as spiritual individuals with an active faith, um, as capable adults who are equipped to handle not only families of their own, but capable of guiding our country on to the next generation. So I think it is proactive. Yes, I know it's a little tongue-in-cheek because it's it's attempting to bring levity to a, a tough topic, but we've gotten away from protecting the innocence of children Maybe it's because of cell phones, maybe it's because of our, our culture is so inundated with, and has been for so long with, um, overtly sexual advertisements. We've, we've, and now, you know, children are exposed to critical race theory and trans theory and drag queen story hours and neo pronouns and all of the rest of it. We've forgotten to protect children's innocence. And that's a key part of the Marxist strategy to destroy our country is to subvert the innocence of our sons and daughters, and we should hide our children from the Marxists as we eradicate Marxism from the institutional structures of our country.
1: Liz, so as we finish up this fascinating conversation for me here, Uh, I guess I'm finding myself wondering, there's still this whole significant group of people in society who I don't think are on board with uh, radical Marxist changes. But they're kind of maybe a bit on autopilot maybe they don't really see what's happening maybe they realize they've heard this they feel that something's wrong they can't put their finger on it it's those people that probably in a sense are the most important people in the equation i'm just curious if you agree with that
0: yes i think we're at a very unique moment in our nation because a lot of the people you described which i would describe as just average moms and dads they're maybe not super politically engaged because they're busy and they're raising families, have unintentionally become more politically aware as their children and their families have come under attack by this wokeness. They don't like it and they recognize in their gut, the way that I did when that journalist at CPAC asked me if I thought that we should legalize meth, they recognize inherently that it's wrong that critical race theory is wrong, trans ideology is wrong, wokeness is wrong. They recognize that it's wrong, and they're looking for the leadership or the solution, the antidote, the prescription to fix this so that they can just go back to being, just go back to their regular lives, just go back to being moms and dads and workers and living. And they're looking for that, and if we don't offer a clear vision, then they're going to, well, what happened with Andrew Tate? We're going to have situations like that where people fall prey to an accurate diagnosis and a dangerous prescription for the problem. So I think people's eyes, parents' eyes, have been opened to an extent that they are willing, in a way that they never have been before, to engage in political discussions and hear the reality of where this chaos, this insanity, this evil is coming from, and my hope, of course, and I know I'm biased here, but my hope, of course, is that they do choose to pick up this book, even if they're not particularly politically engaged. If you care about your children, you care about society, you care about what our country is and, and, and your family's ability to thrive and to flourish in our society, then be part of this fight with us. Build the country that we want.
1: Well, Liz Wheeler, it's such a pleasure to have had you on.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you all for joining Liz Wheeler and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck. Hello, everyone. I think we all need a little positivity and inspiration in these turbulent times. And so I would like to introduce a new art store we've set up in partnership with the NTD International Figure Painting Competition. Its mission is pure truth, kindness and beauty.
0: It's a painting that is peaceful,
1: there's a lot of beauty in it, and you
0: forget about whatever you might be worried about.
1: Both original paintings and reproductions of these beautiful works can be found online at the Inspired Original Shop.